to you in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text from the Holy Gospel, these words, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and so he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him and his, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. How fitting and how coincidental, I'm sure, that only days after the primary elections, which put so many women of California in the front and center of the political scene, that a woman of Israel a couple thousand years ago should be put front and center in our text for today. Now there is, of course, a significant difference between the women that I first referred to being put on the political scene and the women of Israel of 2,000 years ago, a significant difference because the women of California who won last Tuesday's primaries are seeking very reputable offices of governor and senator and congressional representative, honorable positions to be sure. There was hardly anything honorable at all about being thought of as a woman of the city in Israel 2,000 years ago. It was a title given to women publicly known by their sinful indiscretions. And that's putting it rather mildly. Indeed, the only parallel to be drawn here between the women of last Tuesday's primary elections and the woman of our text for today is that they all had some degree of courage to be where we find them today. For the woman of our text, known as the woman of the city, to intrude upon the revered and the respected religious leader of the day to intrude upon the house of a Pharisee took a great deal of courage. And I suppose it might even be said that there is required of women today who would enter upon the political scene at least a small amount of courage too for a a Whitman or a Fioroni or a Boxer or Pelosi to open their lives to the scrutiny of the political world undoubtedly requires an amount of courage as well. Neither, of course, compared to the courage required of women in Iraq or women in Afghanistan who dare to hold up that now familiar dyed finger, a symbol of their ability to vote and their courage indeed which does vote in a public election. Reminds me of a story on gender roles in Kabul, Afghanistan that Barbara Walters on ABC's 2020 did several years before the current Afghan war. She noted that women customarily would walk five paces or so behind their husbands. And recently returning from Kabul, she observed that women still walk behind their husbands. In fact, from Miss Walters' vantage point, despite the setbacks, in recent years of the Taliban, she was surprised to find that the women there in Afghanistan, even today it seems, walk further behind their husbands than before. And so she approached one of the Afghani women and she asked, 
Why do you now seem happy with an old custom of walking behind your husbands, an old custom that you once tried so desperately to change? And the woman looked Miss Walter straight in the eyes, and without any hesitation, she said, Landmines. <laughs> Landmines. Behind every man, there's a smart woman. So it said. Of course, it would be a, a grave mistake to think that Jesus endorsed in any way the maltreatment of women. He most certainly did not, whether it was his mother Mary, Mary and Martha, the sisters of his good friend Lazarus, the Samaritan woman at the well, the hemorrhaging woman who had been for 12 years and more so maltreated by physicians, the widow with her might in the temple, the widow of Nain, whose son was resurrected by Jesus from the dead, as you heard about last Sunday, or the incident of the woman in our text for today, and there are other incidents as well. You can be sure as you look at all of these cases in the New Testament that the perfect son of both God and Adam treated all of these women with whom he came into contact with great compassion and consistently reaffirmed the human dignity of each as the daughters of Eve. Indeed, look at the last verses of the Gospel reading for today, the first verses of the 8th chapter of St. Luke, where it says, Soon afterward he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, note these words, and also some women. And then St. Luke goes on to identify these women one by one, name by name, concluding by saying of them all, they were serving the twelve. Diakoneo in the Greek, suggesting a very important word because it's a word from which the word deaconess comes. We have deaconesses in our churches. Women that are trained to assist the pastor, to help the pastor in serving others. In this case, though, it comes from and is used in the text to indicate that these women were actually serving the twelve and serving the Lord Jesus himself using provisions which they had from the hard work that they would put in and doing it as the tense in the Greek indicates for a long period of time. Faithful, hard-working patronesses. Faithful, hard-working deaconesses of the Lord and the twelve apostles. Was the unnamed woman of the city that was here at the house of Simon the one who was forgiven and then later ch changed, would, was she indeed one who was mentioned at the end of today's gospel? Might it have been that the woman at Jesus' feet was Mary Magdalene? Many think so. Others say she's not identified, so you can't say that with any certainty. We don't know. Obviously, the woman's name is of no consequence, or the Holy Spirit would have caused that name there to be recorded the name of the woman at Jesus' feet. But it's of no consequence who she was, but that she was a woman who was indeed a sinner. That's the significance. What's significant about the scene as we have it before us in our text is what happens at the scene in the Pharisee's house as that scene unfolds because it's so rich in what it says about each of the two main characters that are there, the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee. One of them who is there and meets Jesus face to feet, and the other one who meets Jesus face to face. 
So take the one that meets Jesus face to face first. Take Simon the Pharisee, who's been described, to use a modern parallel, this way. He's the kind of man, quote, the kid. The kid who, after breaking his father's favorite mug, glues it back together and then puts it up in the cupboard again. He's the kid who moves the sofa over the grape juice spill and the stain in the carpet, hoping that he'll be able to hide it from his parents. He's the kid who stands before his mother with chocolate smeared all over his face and says, Mother, I did not eat the chocolate. That's the kind of kid that Simon the Pharisee was, the sinner, who thinks that he can sin just a little and get by with it, hide it. The sinner who thinks that human sin is humanly manageable, that human sin is humanly disposable, removable. But don't you think there's just a little bit of Simon in in each one of us as well? I dare say there is. The sinner who thinks that he can just sin a little bit and get away with it because it's not that big a sin after all. Drink and drive? No, we don't do that. But answer the cell phone in the car or text a message or two on the way from one place to, well, maybe a little, well, maybe more often than we should. Adultery? Cheat on your spouse? Absolutely not. Cheat on your taxes? Well, I'm not married to the IRS. Steal anything from anyone? No, I'm not a thief. And you can't count surfing the net at work while I'm being paid to be productive. Anything before God in my life? No, not between 11 and 12 on Sunday mornings, usually. Oh yes, there's a bit of Simon in all of us. That part of us that says, I suppose there's some little sins that I can actually manage in this world. There are some sins that I can actually get away with. And even if I find that I can't get away with them, there are sins I probably can fix by myself if only I'll do this or do that to make up for that sin, do some good in order to make them go away. That's the thinking of a Simon the Pharisee. After all, I don't really do any of those bad sins. My sins are, you know, those very small ones, those little ones, those, those harmless ones, the ones that everybody does and seems to get away with. I'm not a murderer, I'm not a Bundy or a Berkowitz or a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Vandersloot. I'm not an adulterer like a Sanford or a Edwards or Woods. I'm not a, a corporate executive thief like a Bernie Madoff, who made off with billions of dollars of thousands of investors. Thank God I'm not like one of them. Thank God I'm not like that woman over there. Yes, that woman over there. There's a real sinner, that woman over there at the feet of Jesus. She's a real sinner. She's a bad sinner. And everybody knows it. Everybody, it seems, except Jesus. Obviously he doesn't know it. Obviously he doesn't know who she is and what she is because if he did, he'd never let her do to him what she's doing. He'd never let her touch him. But look, he does. And it's not merely that she's touching his feet. 
with her tears, but she's wiping his feet with her filthy hair. How presumptuous. But I suppose how fitting his unclean feet, because after all, I didn't wash them when he came in my house. His unclean feet being washed by her unclean hair. If he were a prophet, he would really know. Oh, Simon. Simon, Simon. Jesus knows. Jesus knows so much more, Simon, than you think he knows. He not only knows who this woman is, he not only knows every sordid detail of this woman's life, but he also knows the sins of another sinner who is here, another sinner who is indeed guilty of sins even greater than that woman's sins, Simon, greater than hers because the greatest sins of all are those, even the smaller ones, that will not be confessed by he who commits them but thinks them to be too small to be confessed and too small to need forgiveness. See what happens? See what Jesus here does? He compares the sins of Simon, who reclines comfortably and impenitently at the table in a position of honor, to the penitent woman who is at Jesus' feet, weeping in remorse over her sins, wetting his feet with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. Both of them were sinners. Both were sinners, sinners whose sins would a year and a half hence be paid for by the very Jesus with whom one ate and at whose feet the other wept. Sinners whose sins, from the first of the sins they ever committed to the last of them, from the least of them to the greatest of them, sinners whose sins would not simply touch the feet of Jesus, but sins that would weigh down so heavily on the feet of Jesus as he bore them, the full body not only of their sins, but of the sins of the whole world, from Gethsemane to Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod, to Pilate, again, and finally, finally to that holy site where the Lamb of God, destined divinely to be the sacrifice of the world, was indeed sacrificed upon the cross, slain for the sins of mankind. Sins that would not only touch the hands of Jesus, but sins that would pierce them through into the cross, the tree upon which he was hanged. The tree spoken of indeed by the Apostle Paul today when in the epistle lesson it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And you look at love like this, even as the woman did. And you look at love like this, and what response does such love evoke from us? Well, I suppose it depends upon which of the two characters of the text we identify most with. If we, like Simon, think our sins small, if we, like Simon, think that making ourselves right with God is a doable thing on our part, 
We'll probably respond to the presence of Jesus just like Simon did. We'll politely invite him even to our home, having him sit at our banqueting table that we might then, from a safe distance, measure the stature of the man and judge him. That we might see him not too close up, but at a safe distance, at an arm's length. The old Lutheran scholar Adam Falling, who wrote an excellent book entitled The Life of Christ, describes Simon's response in these memorable words. He says, while Jesus received the hospitality of a Pharisee, it seems that the ordinary attentions which would have been paid an honored guest were purposely omitted by the Pharisee. There was no water for the weary and dusty feet, no kiss of welcome upon the cheek, no perfume for the hair, nothing but a somewhat ungracious admission to a vacant seat and the distant courtesies so managed that the guest might feel that he was receiving and not conferring an honor by being there. Beautifully put, and I suppose little more can be expected of one who doesn't appreciate either who was present or what he was there present to do. But the sinful woman, unlike Simon, the sinful woman knew, didn't she? The sinful woman knew what Jesus was there for and she knew who he was. By God's grace, she knew who was present and what he had come there to do, that he was God in the flesh, present in the house of a sinner like herself, God come to save her, and the love of Christ evoked in her what only the love of God, the love of Christ can do, the love of a gratitude that knows it will never be able to repay what it's been freely given, but wants simply to be close to the giver wants simply to be close to Christ, the giver as she can be, a, a closeness that results in her wetting his feet with her tears and wiping his teared feet with her hair, so close to the one who would not remain distant from us sinners, but rather became everything that we are, including our sin for us, that we might forever be close to him. Would that we could be so close to Jesus as this woman of the city was. Oh, but we can. We can. We can be even closer to him than this woman of the city was. And that's why he said, and that's why you're going to hear once again, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Take and drink my blood shed for you. You can't get any closer than that. Think on these things and gratefully prepare to receive him at his banquet table where he says to you what he said to the woman of the city, your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.